From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. When it comes to armed self-defense, it's usually not the shooting itself that trips you up legally. More often than not, it's what you do afterward that gets you in hot water. And on this episode of Keepin' Bear Radio, we're going to discuss 10 things you should never do after a self-defense shooting if you want to avoid getting arrested, prosecuted, and perhaps imprisoned simply for defending your life. I'm Dean Reek. Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I recently ran across a recorded interview with Sean Maloney, which I'm going to play for you in a moment. Sean has been a guest previously on Keepin' Bear Radio. He's a criminal defense attorney practicing in all areas of firearm-related law, and he's legal counsel with BFA. He's also co-founder of Second Call Defense, a membership organization that provides legal and financial protection for law-abiding citizens who have been forced to defend themselves or their loved ones. Full disclosure, Buckeye Firearms Association promotes Second Call Defense in return for a small affiliate payment for those who sign up through links on our website. Having said that, I do honestly believe Second Call Defense is an amazing organization and worth checking out at secondcalldefense.org. Sean and I recorded this interview about six years ago. The audio is not quite as good as our recent podcasts, but the information is solid. So, here are 10 things you should never do after a self-defense shooting. So, Sean, let's go through our list of the things that you should never do. Number one on the list, never call 911 in a panic. Now, uh, what do you have to say about that? Well, no matter how emotionally prepared you are for a 911 call or how prepared you think you are, you have to remember that you're suffering from a massive dump of adrenaline. Neophenephrine is rushing through your bloodstream, giving you more, mem- or, or more pressure. Your blood pressure is rising. Mm-hmm. You have extreme muscular activity, tunnel vision. All this is happening, and now you're expected to call 911 and tell me everything, and you're being recorded. So, so basically, you're not... You know, when, when we're saying don't call in a panic, uh, uh, what, what, what are you going to do about that? I mean, you're going to feel the way you feel. Your body's going to have that reaction. So what can you do? Well, one of the main things that you can do is you can practice uh, box breathing or tactical four-part breathing that everybody hears about but has a different name. And essentially what it is is slow, deep breathing process where you take four, a deep breath, in through your nose on a count of four, and you hold it for four seconds, and then release that air through the mouth for four seconds. Four seconds with no breath and start it all over again, and you'd be surprised just how calm you'll become. Uh, The blood pressure will start to lower. You'll start to collect your thoughts and have a greater ability to actually function now more as you're used to functioning. So basically, basically before calling 911, you're just saying just kind of take a minute, you know, pause, breathe, calm down, then make your phone call. 
That's exactly right. You, what just happened may seem like it's happened at a thousand miles per hour. Take a time to relax to make sure that you collect your thoughts and then calmly uh, make that 911 call. Okay, that sounds like good advice. Well, number two on the list, never leave the scene. Now, to me, this seems like it's pretty obvious. Why would anybody leave the scene? Well, because of the, the, the action that just took place, uh, there's that fight or that flight fear that's in your system, which, by the way, that the, the, the four-square breathing will help alleviate. But because of what's just happened, you're not quite sure what's happening, and a lot of people leave. And as a matter of fact, Dean, uh, that shooting that took place from a second call defense member in Philadelphia, for instance, when I received his phone call through the emergency hotline, he was at home. He was attacked by three individuals. He shot in self-defense. They ran. He ran. Uh, it wasn't something he did volitionally, but again, it's that fight or that flight uh, system that's set up in our body. He wanted to save his life no matter how we had to do that. So in that case, he fled the scene. So, that there, one, so there might be some, some um, uh, examples where maybe uh, you leave the scene because you think you have to because it's uh, – because it's in your best interest to do so or because you're trying to survive. But, but in general, you, you don't want to go anywhere, right? I mean, it's like leaving the scene of an accident. You want to, you want to try to stay put if it's safe. Oh, you're 100% right, Dean. Unless your life depends on it, you want to stay there. Uh, and again, that's the reason why we use that four-square breathing. So use it then, calm down, and don't leave. Mm -hmm. If you leave, witnesses can disappear, evidence can disappear, the police may think that you're avoiding them because you're guilty. Uh, any other number of reasons why uh, they can infer that you left the scene. Uh, more importantly, you want to control that crime scene as much as you possibly can before the police get there. You want to make sure that witnesses on your behalf that are going to be good for you don't go anywhere. You want to make sure that the knife, the axe, the tire iron, whatever the bad guy was using, that someone doesn't pick that up and decide he likes it and takes it, takes it home with him. So you want to control that, that, that crime scene and be ready for what's going to, about to occur. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And talking about evidence, I mean, that leads us right to number three, never move or tamper with evidence. Now, this one I, I kind of understand. I'm, I'm a little bit of a neat freak myself. And, and, you know, you're really worked up. You're really emotional. I can kind of see that, you know, when you're in that state, you might have a natural tendency if stuff's kind of knocked all over your house that you're going to want to start straightening things up and you're not doing it necessarily to tamper with evidence. But that's maybe how the police are going to see it if you if you start moving anything around, right? Correct, Dean. You know what? You stated it very, very precisely because, you know, as, as being a neat freak in your case uh, or as not quite sure of what's happening, there's blood everywhere. Uh, you don't know. You could have had a fight. You could have knocked things off the dresser. The knife or the firearm could be anywhere. You could have shell casings on the ground. You know, it's natural to want you to tidy up your home. Uh, especially for acting under that extreme stress of a shooting that we've talked about. Uh, it, it's unwise to touch anything. I always remind people that every crime scene tells a story. Uh, every piece of evidence laying in a certain direction tells a story. Uh, it could be blood spotter evidence. If you're, if you're cleaning up a crime scene, for example, because there's blood, well, that blood tells a story. The mm -hmm. positioning of the body and the shell casings all tells a story. So by cleaning that evidence, it, it could look like that you're tampering with the evidence is what you can be charged with. And all of a sudden, that statement that you make through your attorney three or four days later doesn't match up with the physical evidence at the crime scene. And so that can be a problem. Now, that can be explained away by saying, you know, 
my wife or, or I decided to, to straighten things up or tidy things up, wasn't quite clear what I was doing. But that's why you don't want to alter a crime scene anyway, no matter how much we may want to. Okay. Yeah. That, my, that, one, my, yeah my one caveat to that, too, my one caveat is if, if you're attacked with a firearm and you've dispatched the threat and that firearm is laying near or out in the open, you want to – I would move that to make sure that no one's going to get a hold of that and endanger your lives or that the bad guy couldn't suddenly grab that also. So you have to take that in mind. Right. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense too. Well, uh, we're coming up on number four here. Never have your gun in your hand when police arrive. Now, th this one makes perfect sense, right? The cops are going to roll up. Let's say that you're in your yard and they come up and you're standing there and you've got a gun in your hand. I mean – they don't know who you are. They don't know what's going on, right? I mean, this is isn't this for your safety? Absolutely, it's for your safety. And and if you can remember uh, the Walmart incident with the airsoft gun, a, mm -hmm. a firearm in a hand with 911 calls caused a lot of problems. Police are going to re be responding to a, a man with a gun or shots fired, and maybe the 911 call that you're acting on isn't one that you knew anything about. You, you could be calling 911 along with a half a dozen other people. So you never know mm. what information the police are going to have when they roll up to the scene. Man with a gun. I use the example, you know, you've been working around the house all day. You're in uh, a torn shirt and dirty jeans and uh, you're washing your BMW. Well, somebody's laying dead in the bushes in a suit. He was disguising himself as a door-to-door -door salesman. Uh, he attacked you. There was a gunfight. You're standing there in shock with a firearm in your hand. The police roll up, and they've been told there's been a shooting, and there's a man with a gun. And yep. guess what you are? So what, you, what should you do with your gun? I assume you know if, if you were wearing a holster, you reholster. But if you're just at home and you just have the gun, are you just laying it down on the floor, or what, what do you do? Uh, this actually came up in a case that we had with second call defense also. Uh, the the uh, second call defense member called the police, and the police were on their way, and, and then they called me, and I was the attorney on duty. And I calmed him down. We did some four-square breathing, and I said, where's the firearm? He said, in my hand. I said, where do you normally keep the firearm? He said, well, when I go to bed at night, it goes in my, my dresser drawer. I said, let's unload that, and let's put that in the dresser drawer right now so there's not any mistakes because, again, when the police arrive, the nervousness of the situation, I never like to hand my firearm loaded to anybody anyhow. Mm -hmm. So that's why I advised him just to, to secure the firearm and put it away and you want to do that because it makes everybody comfortable because remember the 911 operator you don't know what was said to the police and the police are going to roll up on this and it's better for everybody and for your safety to make sure that the gun is number one in control uh, and then not in, held in such a manner that you could be mistaken for the bad guy right yeah because you don't, you don't want to get shot right after protecting yourself no that that would be uh that would be the wrong thing to have happen in that situation but you know what you and i can both understand how that could happen sure. and it has happened mm -hmm. okay so uh number five never make a statement to police before you talk to your lawyer now I, everybody's heard this you know you, do, you don't say anything until you get legal advice right well, that's correct, you, mostly because for several reasons. A lot of the reasons you really don't know just what happened. And I always make, tell everybody, you know, we're, we're instructed to call 911, and as a law-abiding good guy with a firearm, we're going to do that. But uh, now the police have arrived at your scene or at the house or at the ATM you're using, wherever the lethal, lethal force incident occurred. Now, what are you supposed to do? Because you and I both know the police have a job to do. 
and we need to be cooperative, but at the same time, we need to walk the line and, and balance to protect our Fifth Amendment privileges against incriminating ourselves. And so for that reason, I always advise people, and, and we have training that we simply politely identify ourselves, point out the bad guy, point out evidence and any witnesses because those two things will disappear, and then politely and try to calmly explain that you'll be happy to cooperate, but not until you've had the opportunity to speak to an attorney, to collect your thoughts, and until then, you're invoking your Fifth Amendment privileges against self-incrimination. And, oh, by the way, I'm doing that for my wife and my kids also, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. so, so it's okay to answer basic questions like, what is your name, and do you live in this house, things like that, but factual questions. But you don't want to give a statement, you don't want to explain uh, what happened and and how you're feeling and what your justification was and all of that until you go through all this with your attorney, right? That's correct. You don't want to give a narrative or you don't want to tell a story. You want to tell the facts of what's happened, but you leave the story part out until a, a later time because when you start telling stories and you start thinking, especially acting and reacting under the the effects of a, of a psychological lethal force incident like that, you never know what you're going to say, right. and you don't want to have things misconstrued at this point in time. Okay. All right. Well, that brings us to number six, never fall for good cop, bad cop. Now, I mean, I, I've watched lots of crime dramas, and you see the good cop, bad cop thing working. Um, police have to do their job, right? I mean, they're going to collect evidence. Uh, they're going to, to question you, and they might use a technique on you, right? That's correct. You know, police officers... They're human beings. They have a job to do. Some officers do jobs in different ways, and it all goes along with your personality. You know, there's many forms of interrogation and investigation that police officers are trained to use. There's all kinds out there. Uh, the most common one, by the way, is the re-technique of interrogation, where, you know, where the re-technique of interrogation teaches police officers and teaches investigators to get you to speak when you can't control what you're saying, and obviously that's when that adrenaline's in your system and the neophrenephrine's running through your veins, so they want you to talk right now. They want, they're instructed, talk when the adrenaline's there, the blood pressure's up. Get them to say something. So, you know, that police officer that first arrived that you said, my name is Sean Maloney and I live here. I was in fear for my life and I was forced to shoot somebody. Obviously, I'll be happy to cooperate, but not until I've had a chance to talk to my attorney. I'm sure you understand. He said, yes, Mr. Maloney, I understand completely. Well, that police officer is still there, but now his partner arrives. And all of a sudden, he wants answers. He wants it now. Damn it, you tell me what's going on, or you're going to jail, and I don't care if it was self-defense, and I don't care what's happening. And that happens because then you know, you're being demanded. And then maybe that, that good cop that you first talked to says, hey, look, you know, my my partner, he, he's a hothead. Tell you what, just make a statement. Give me a written statement real quick. We'll get out of here. You can go to bed, and then we can go home. That's what you want to avoid. And they're trained to say that, trained to say that. And, Dean, I always tell people, as part of interrogation and investigation, police officers can lie. They're instructed to lie to make up stories. Now, if you or I do, that's obstruction of justice, but they're allowed to do that, and you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and you're going to want to talk, right? I mean, that's just all part of this psychological situation that's, that you're in. You're, you shouldn't say anything while you're upset, but you're going to have this urge that you want to you want to get it all out and you want to talk about it. So anybody can fall for this, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a tough guy or, or uh, you know, how big you are or whatever it is. It, that, that psychology is going to be working against you at that moment. You're going to want to talk. 
there's going to be an intense urge to say something. We're the good guy with a firearm. We want to explain, hey, look, this is what happened. I didn't want to do this, but I had to. We're, that's a natural mm -hmm. transgression that we're going to want to make. But unfortunately, because of everything we're going under, we don't want to make any statements like that. Again, not because we're trying to be deviant or keep something from the police officers. We just don't know what happened. We don't have the ability to accurately describe what just happened 30 minutes, an mm -hmm. hour, two hours, three hours, or five hours, five days from when it happened. It's going to come, but in time. So, so once again, just keep your mouth shut. That's the best advice that you can get is to calmly articulate to the police officers. You're invoking your Fifth Amendment privileges, and you're going to shut up. All right. Well, uh, number seven, never try your case on the spot. Now, this kind of ties into what we were already talking about is you're going to want to talk. You're going to want to explain. You're going to want to say uh, you know, why you did it and why you were in the right. Uh, but but that, that really isn't going to do you any good, right? That's correct. There's nothing that can be said right after the shooting, for instance, that can't be said four or five days later. There's no emergency. The emergency has gone. Obviously, if someone fl fled the scene, you can give them that factual information, but there's no reason to try your, to try your case on the on the scene or argue your case. You know, police have more than one way to get you to talk, Dean. Aside from the good cop, bad cop, they may challenge why you use self-defense. They may challenge what actually happened, what you're looking at right now, or you don't need a lawyer. Only bad people or guilty people need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. But remember, again, you're suffering from that same adrenaline rush, you know, and I promise you, uh, a lawyer under these same facts should just shut up too because if they if I was involved in a self-defense shooting, make no mistake about it, I'm not a superman. I know I'm going to be suffering from what everybody else is going to be suffering from. So the best advice I can give myself is just to be quiet and I always give my clients this advice. If a police officer has already made the decision that you're going to jail, there isn't anything that you can say that's going to change his or her mind, so just be quiet. There's going to be a time and a place for everything, but absolutely nothing that you say right now is going to keep you from going to jail. I always jokingly tried to say, you know what, if you're going to be arrested in some jurisdictions, you're going to jail no matter what. Just try to enjoy yourself and have a story for the grandkids. <laughs> well, that would be a heck of a story. And, and number eight, never lecture police on the law or your rights. Now, I've seen so many videos where citizens have an encounter with a law enforcement officer and they want to pick that very moment to argue about politics, argue about uh, the law, argue about their rights, and it never helps. It just makes the situation worse. So, number eight, never lecture the police on your law or your rights. I mean, this just is another way of saying, shut up. This is not the time what? to talk, right? Again, because of the adrenaline, you're going to want to talk, and all of a sudden, the police officer makes a misstatement of law or doesn't know the law. And I'm going to tell you, that's not that unusual. As often as laws change from state to state, county to county, and federal law changes, they may not know the law. It could be their second day on the job. You never know what it is. But the last thing you want to do is get into a, an argument about what your constitutional rights are or what their job is and how they're not doing it properly. It's not going to help. So no matter what the police say, even if they say something that you know to be incorrect, this isn't the time and, and the place to get into that debate. You know, oftentimes the stress of situation, again, that adrenaline can make you uncontrollably belligerent, I always say. That's why the best thing is just to say nothing because, I tr trust me, they're going to remember you if you've been belligerent. You know, it's another reason to remain silent. Don't try to teach the police the law even if they don't understand it. 
Yep, that, that sounds like great advice too. And and again, that leads right into number nine. Never fail to use the word sir. Um, you know, we've been watching recently on the news all these incidents between police and citizens in a neighborhood, and there seems to be so much disrespect that some people have for the police. Even if the police are out of line, it's just good advice to uh, show some respect when that situation is happening. Again, that's not the time to uh, to vent your feelings or uh, your personal feelings about the police, right? Right, Dean. I'm glad you brought it up that way, and, and, and you reminded me that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the police officers right now, uh, and that heightens you know, their fear and sometimes their action or reactions to certain situations. So this is a time that, that you don't want to uh, fail to be polite. You want to go out of your way to be polite. Uh, most police are great, decent people. They have a very difficult job. You want to treat them with respect. So just like you said, use yes, sir, and no, sir. It'll go a long way uh, down the line, and I tell people, when I go to pretrials, which is really my first opportunity to speak to the prosecutor and to speak to police officers about what's happened and to find out what's going on, I can promise you that the police officers see so many people that they're usually not going to remember you unless there's two extremes. They're always going to remember you and remember the client. They'll look, oh, yeah, he was a great guy. He was polite. He was very sorry in what was going on. And they're especially going to remember the belligerent ones. They'll never forget those people. And when you have to ask the police, for favor or something that's going on, uh, they're going to remember you if you're not the good guy. And they're going to remember you if you are. And, and there are people, too. That's something that, that is easy to forget. Uh, you know, we're talking about you know, a citizen being all worked up after some kind of an incident. Well, the police can get worked up, too, because they're people. They have emotions. And if you're just poking them in the eye, uh, you know, or, you know, insulting them, and not respecting them, they're going to have an emotional reaction as well. It's just human nature. Oh, absolutely, and you never know what they just left to come and respond to your incident. They could have been in a drag-out, knock-out bar brawl, and they still are pumping full of adrenaline, and now you decide you're not going to be a nice guy, and you're going to start criticizing what's going on. So you're right. The best advice is be polite, even if they don't deserve it. We're all human beings. It go a long way towards the completion of your case. And remember, whatever happens at the side of the road, whatever happens in your house or at the ATM machine, your life is going to change when your attorney gets there. So don't worry. Well, that brings us to the last, number 10. Never be surprised if you're treated like a criminal. Now, I talk to gun owners all the time, and most of them have this idea, you know, they're the good guy, and usually they are, but they somehow think that the police can read their minds when a police officer shows up, uh, unless it, it's just uh, pure luck that, that one shows up who knows you, generally they're going to have no idea who you are. They don't know that you're the good guy. Uh, you shouldn't be surprised if they treat you like a criminal, at least in the short term, right? Absolutely, and I always say you shouldn't be surprised that you're treated like a criminal because even as a law-abiding citizen, if you knowingly, intentionally shot somebody in self-defense – it's a homicide, and you are a criminal. Until the investigation is complete, until a decision is made as to what happened and what didn't happen, uh, you're standing there. You're the one who shot. You're the one who's standing over over top of a body uh, one way or another. So at this point in time, especially at the beginning of the investigation when they don't know who you are, you are the criminal and you are the bad guy. You know, And there's some jurisdictions out there uh, that the person who pulls the triggers, you're going to be arrested no matter what. 
depending upon the police officer you get, you're, you may be handcuffed and you may be placed in the back of the cruiser just until they sort things out. And that's not a good feeling to have your rights diminished, to have, be handcuffed, and be locked in the back of a police car, especially when everything emotionally is going around at that point in time. And you can even be jailed. I've had clients that, you know, in all for all intents and purposes, clearly they didn't do anything. But the police officer wasn't me, and for whatever reason, they're in jail. So, you know, don't take it personally. Don't resist. Don't argue. Be polite. All the advice, Dean, that you brought up earlier and that we talked about, use it all. Because after you're, you call second call defense, you're going to have an immediate help that's going to get there. And again, things are going to be sorted out and your life is going to change when your second call defense referred attorney is by your side. So this would be a moment to just be a little zen about it, right? I mean, it's, it's going to happen. If they're going to cuff you, they're going to cuff you. If they're going to arrest you, they're going to arrest you. You just have to kind of take a breath, let it happen. And let things sort out, right? I mean, I, I would kind of, I would kind of call that the Zen approach to uh, surviving the aftermath of a shooting. That's correct, and that's probably the best way to, to do it. You're out of control now. There's nothing you can do to, to stop to stop what's going to happen. So you, you just need to take that Zen approach. Well, this is all great advice. Uh, th these are all things that can help you uh, uh, avoid some of the really bad things that can happen to you after a shooting. So uh, thanks, Sean. Uh, appreciate it. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership, that's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.